0: Welcome to Babel Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Jihad Azur about the IMF and middle income countries in the Middle East. Then, John, Natasha, and I drill in on the trade offs associated with IMF funding and the potential for Gulf funding to
0: take over. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Jihad Azur is the director of the Middle East and Central Asia Department at the International Monetary Fund. Jihad, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you for having me. You just came back from the Middle East. What was the mood and what did you see? Well, John,
2: this is the beginning of the year, and therefore everybody is looking back at what happened in 2022, and then what are the main issues for this year? If I go a year back, in the beginning of 2022, the region was enjoying a growing and strong recovery after COVID. The situation has relatively changed, whereby we had somehow a divergence, a tale of two cities. You have the oil exporting countries who keep enjoying strong tailwinds. Oil price is still high. The reforms that they have introduced over the last five years are paying off. And the way they manage the COVID crisis and their ability to recover fast also has strengthened their capacity to generate growth. On the other hand, the countries who are what we call middle income or emerging economies are facing headwinds. One is the increase in price of commodities, price of oil, price of food with the war in Ukraine is affecting their economic stability. They are facing it for the third year in a row, double digit inflation. On the other hand, especially the middle income countries who also rely on the market for their financing, where the change in the course of the global monetary policy are Being hurt by high level of interest rates. When I look at 2023, there are a certain number of things that we know. One is globally economy will slow down. The three major engines of global economy are on slowdown mode, the US, Europe, and China for different reasons, which will affect the rest of the world. Second, the uncertainty on the second year of the Conflict in Ukraine is also an issue that is on the mind of many people, especially that this region is very much affected by geopolitical developments. And three long standing issues are still there. The level of unemployment is on the rise, especially at the youth level. And the level of growth on average in the region is not enough to maintain the same level of income per capita. Therefore, This year is going to be an important one and is going to be a challenging one for some countries in the region.
0: So let me go back. You mentioned the impacts of COVID. Overall, do you think that COVID had a larger or smaller effect than you had anticipated on regional economies? I think
2: countries were able to react very quickly. By and large, they were able to protect lives and livelihoods. And despite some challenges in the beginning in terms of access to vaccine, in terms of access to medical resources, most of the countries were able to set certain practices, introduce certain number of policies that brought confidence back very quickly and help them address the challenges of maintaining the right balance between reducing the spread of the virus and maintaining their economy functioning. Therefore, the exit from COVID was also strong and fast. We, in the level of recovery in 2021 and in 2022, covered for the loss of output that came with COVID, and also the recovery helped several countries address some of the issues that came up immediately after the COVID crisis. However, there are scars, and scars for certain sectors that were more affected, especially. The informal sector, our contact-intensive sectors were more affected, and a certain number of social groups, because of the weak infrastructure in terms of telecom, in terms of internet, were more affected because their access to certain basic services was not equivalent to the rest. The second important development is unemployment. Unemployment went up across the board, especially for the youth, and women participation declined. And those are, for me, the priorities for the next decade. Any policy should aim at ultimately achieving, through a higher level of growth and inclusion, the capacity to provide jobs and the capacity to increase the level of participation of women in the economy.
0: One of the manifestations of frustration, especially with IMF policies, has been people who come out into the streets periodically over the last 20, 30 years in the Middle East to protest the government cutting back on subsidies, cutting back on the sorts of price supports that they've come to expect. How does the IMF think about how much political space governments have, how much leeway they have? Do you measure that? How do your experts think about when you have to take the foot off the gas because governments just want to keep people from going into the streets? This is a very important issue, and
2: you're asking a few questions in one. Let me take them one by one. Subsidy is not uniform, and we tend to differentiate more and more between food subsidy and fuel subsidy. Our research is showing that fuel subsidy is more regressive than the food subsidy, i.e., the low 40% of the population don't benefit on average for more than 15 to 20% of the coal subsidy, which means that you are providing very rare, and precious resources to those who don't need it. Therefore, it's very important to make sure that you expand your social safety net. And when you need to provide subsidy, you provide it in a targeted way. We are very much in favor of social protection. The level of spending on social protection is relatively low in the region and need to be increased, but need to go for those who are in need
0: for it not the opposite. But on political terms, often it's not the poorest who go into the streets, it's the middle class that goes in prison, right? This is the second dimension of your question. Therefore,
2: the subsidy in itself is proven to be not the best way to use public resources. It's regressive and it transfers resources from those who need it to those who don't need it. I think it's about time that we look at the overall social framework, the social compact, whereby we address the root cause of the issues. You need to strengthen the social protection by providing income support to those who economically cannot afford, and this is importance of social transfer that needs to be targeted. Second is the social contract, especially for the middle-income people, whereby you need to promote economic activity that create jobs, which starts from investment Infrastructure and enablers. Investment is to promote investments in sectors that create jobs, that export, and that allow your population to thrive. Infrastructure, you need to have an infrastructure that helps in increasing productivity in telecom and transportation and logistics. Enablers, education, access to talent, access to finance. When you compare the region to other parts of the world, you see that access to finance for a region that has financial resources is very low, between three to 5% when you know, on a comparable basis, it's 15 to 18%. Women participation is low for a region that is investing in education. Therefore, here you need to enable by unlocking some of the legal impediments, by developing certain number of social infrastructures, childcare, public transportation, All these issues are very important. And last but not the least, transparency, corruption, fighting corruption are important elements, not only in bringing trust back, but also in also increasing the capacity for those who in the middle class do not have access to what we call the WASTA, to have access to opportunities. I think it's a good time for the region to go back to basic things in order to use this moment, this challenge, as an opportunity to do a major transformations. On your last question, yes, we have invested a lot on understanding the political economy of reforms. And also, we developed indices about social unrest. But the experience here, John, is very telling. Delaying decisions puts you in a situation where you need to do more with less impact. If you delay decisions, if you delay policies, you end up doing more effort or more adjustment, and also you end up increase the level of resentment. Therefore, I think it's important to understand from previous cases that it's very important to be as transparent as possible, explain to people what are the trade-offs, move fast, and create through those challenges a possibility to break some of the bottlenecks that exist and unleash the potential of your economies. This is also a moment where part of the region is going to enjoy huge level of additional revenues. We estimate this to be on the north of $1 trillion over the next four to five years. This is something that can be channeled to different countries, and especially that we see the GCC countries wanting to invest. And they are interested in more foreign investment or direct investment in those economies. It's an important moment, and time should be
0: used wisely. I want to come back to that, but I want to drill down a little bit on the specifics. You talked about the importance of moving quickly, and there were more than nine months of serious negotiations with Egypt over a loan that initially was speculated to be in the 10 to $15 billion range. It took nine months, President Sisi was in Europe and said, you have to understand, give us political space. It came in as a $3 billion loan in December, very much on the low end of expectations. Why were expectations off? What did people miss about Egypt's need for an IMF loan? And what do you think is gonna come from the IMF loan? Well, first of all, The partnership between
2: Egypt and the fund is a strong one, and Egypt has done important reforms over the last five years. Those reforms helped the Egyptian economy to grow at rates exceeding 5% on average, and this despite COVID. Last fiscal year, Egypt has a growth rate of 6.5%. Egypt was able also to address some of the major challenges that the Egyptian economy was facing, or attract additional investment and create jobs. One also has to recognize that the Egyptian economy was subjected to external shocks. The war in Ukraine with the impact on price of food, price of wheat for a country that is heavily dependent on those imports from Russia and Ukraine, impact on tourism that came also after two years of low season with COVID. Clearly, Egypt is an economy that has a strong potential, that has a large set of resources, Egypt needs to stabilise the macroeconomy and the most important issue to address is inflation. And this is why monetary policy should be geared toward reducing the impact of inflation, not only on the economic stability, but also socially, to to use the exchange rate to protect the economy from external shocks. At a time where we are in a shock-prone global economy, and three is to accelerate economic transformations through structural reforms. I think we all agree, starting from the Egyptians, that jobs can be created and the private sector should be in the lead. This would require that certain number of measures, reforms to be introduced. This would also require to provide the private sector with needed support. Those are the basic foundations of the program that we have negotiated with the authorities. With the last dimension, which is social. We believe that what Egypt was able to achieve over the last five years of better targeting need to be expanded. The size of the program should not be reflecting the commitment of the fund. The fund has provided over the last five years more than $18 billion to Egypt. The role of this program is to play a catalytic role for other sources of financing. And this brings to some of the
0: Gulf sources that you were talking about.
2: Yes, some of the bilaterals and some of the bilaterals are showing great interest to provide support to Egypt, be it in form of deposits, loans, but also investment. And I think this is something that we highly welcome, because this is what would help Egypt create job opportunities. And this is what will help Egypt to attract, through FDIs, a stable source of finances.
0: Have you been in touch with Gulf Finance ministers about supplementing the IMF loan with their own deposits in the Egyptian Central Bank? Yes, and this was part of the whole discussion at the time when we were
2: preparing for the program. We were in regular and constant dialogue with GCC authorities, and this is something that also hand-in-hand with the Egyptian authorities we did. I think it's very important to highlight that what the strategy of Egypt today in attracting FDIs is in attracting stable source of funding, in attracting resources that will lead into investment job creation. And I think this is the right strategy.
0: So Egypt, I think, comes across as the easy challenge. You were just in Lebanon. 80% of the population or more is now in poverty. And most people argue that Lebanon's economic crisis is really a reflection of an underlying political crisis that the country's been in for many years. You're the former finance minister of Lebanon. How do you think Political logjam blocking economic reform can be broken. What's everybody's role breaking that? How do you catalyze that in Lebanon's political system? An extraordinary
2: effort needs to be made to help Lebanon exit this crisis. It has to start with a package of reforms that will bring confidence back. You need to bring trust in both of the Lebanese community as well as also the international community, to work, invest and, and to promote a new economic recovery. This requires to address a certain number of issues, and the economy cannot grow without a healthy financial system, without a state that is efficient and operational. Therefore, you need to address the legacy of the past. You need also to provide certain safeguards for people to trust the future. And this is where the IMF program is an important piece in that. And you need to use this as a moment of accelerating reforms and transforming the Lebanese economy. On one hand, to catch up the lost ground, and on the other hand, to create a sustainable recovery, i.e., a recovery that will not be stopped by any political bickering or political tension. It has to be a phased approach. Phase one is to stabilize, bring confidence back. This requires addressing and restarting the economy, addressing the financial sector issues and restore some of the core functions of the state. Two is to reform and to restructure some of the key public entities, especially on some of the leading sectors like electricity, Telecom that are the key enablers for an economy to prosper. And three, this economy has huge potential because of the spread of the Lebanese diaspora internationally and the capacity for this economy to reconnect to the new world economic order. This will come in a form of partnership. Part of it has to be done through internal reforms and. This also would require the international community to provide financial support, but also to provide, I would say, more strategic support, opening to Lebanon opportunity to reconnect to the regional economy and to the global economy and to grow. This will take time, but I think the magnitude of the crisis and the extent of this crisis should be a call for action for the Lebanese to say, you know, never again and even if the political situation would remain complex, but it shouldn't
0: hijack the life and the life of people. Let me ask a very forward-looking question. The energy transition will happen. We don't know just how quickly, we don't know what it'll look like. As you think forward in the region, when do you think the energy transition is likely to start taking a bite out of regional revenues? How will the phases proceed as the energy transition affects both labor exporting states and oil exporting states in the region over the next 50 years
2: well one one has to recognize that climate issues are affecting the region i see many countries developing long term energy transition strategies starting from all the oil exporting ones but also to the others and the cop27 in egypt it was an opportunity to highlight the importance of that three of course when you talk about energy transition in a region where you have a large portion of the oil and gas export coming from the region, it has a different meaning. I think we see more a kind of a reconciliation between energy security on one hand to provide a stable supply of energy to the world economy, but also a transition out of the fossil fuel energy. And here, there are three important steps. One is adaptation. And we see a lot of investment and effort put in adaptation. Two, mitigation, which is more complex and more challenging. And three is by developing a certain number of financial mechanisms to finance this transition. And we are working with other institutions, other multilaterals, but also regional institutions, to promote the need to understand that this is a long-term. Transformation requires
0: a huge amount of investment, and this is something that the country needs to embrace. From an economic perspective, how should we think in the foreseeable future about what the economic stages of the transition look like? What we saw recently,
2: we saw an acceleration of economic transformation in the oil exporting countries, where the strategy to diversify economies outside oil and also to diversify the source of income of the state from the oil revenues. And it has succeeded. The second thing, which I think is going to be an avenue for future, is to change the pattern of regional coordination or regional integration, moving from the old top-down political framework of regional integration to something that is more fit, that is more driven by the private sector, whereby both... Capital, human resources, and markets will converge in order to create opportunities. We see recently that several sovereign wealth funds in the region, in Saudi, UAE, Qatar, and I expect soon Kuwait will join, that are looking for investment opportunities in Jordan, in Egypt, and Lebanon, in Morocco, Tunisia, and so on, creating additional regional integration through enlarging the size of the market. And the global trends are helping in this direction because we see the trends of onshoring, friendly shoring, or regional shoring. And I see this as something that could provide for the region the opportunity to channel additional resources, to use a larger market, and by removing some of the barriers to create opportunities. And we did a lot of work on that. We did it for, for example, for the North African countries, whereby we demonstrated that only by removing barriers to the economic barriers, you can create additional growth of an average of 1% over the next 5 to 10 years. We demonstrated that by improving access to the market for women, you can capture $1 trillion of additional output in the next decade. We've demonstrated that by addressing issues related to the inclusion of youth through training, education, that you can also increase the output for the region and also for individual countries. Therefore, I think this is a moment whereby three things are going to make a difference. One is to recognize that there are a certain number of challenges that need to be addressed. The world economy is not going to be in the next couple of years a driving force for cheap capital or high level of growth. And therefore, you have to recognize that and you have to adjust to this. Two, macroeconomic stability is still important and matter. And three, the countries of the region have already developed strategies, plans to accelerate economic transformation. Maybe this is the right time to put those pieces in implementation. And let me
0: ask one final question. There was a perception in the 70s and 80s that the Gulf money brought with it a certain cultural price, that there was a spread of conservative religion. There was a sense that attitudes toward women's dress was somehow connected to Gulf support. Clearly, the Gulf is moving away from religious conservatism as it had in the 70s and 80s. What do you think the Gulf would look for as a trade for the investment of more capital in the region. Are there cultural or political things the Gulf would want in exchange for helping the economies of the Levant and North Africa? It's a difficult question. Let's
2: try to dissect it into pieces. One, the trend that Gulf societies are taking is more toward liberalization, toward openness. We see this in Saudi. We see this in Qatar, where it's recently the World Cup, we see this manifested in UAE. Therefore, there is a trend of social transformation in the Gulf that I would say is even faster than what we see on average in the region. Two, the nature of capital is much more, I would say, investment and private sector led or private sector mentality that is going now toward those countries. You have less funding that is going through the traditional channel of deposits or loans, and you see more interest in investment. And an investment that is managed by professionals usually seek to create value for investors. Therefore, I see less disconnection going forward. And also, I think I see less the tendencies of exporting any ideology currently. I think what is important at this stage is to recognize that basic fundamental issues still need to be addressed, okay? You need to create more growth because you have a population that is growing and growing fast. And if economic policies do not create opportunities, they will not satisfy the population. You have to reconcile between the short term and the long term. The short term means that you need to provide both economic stability, address and mitigate the shocks, especially now the shock of inflation, the shock of increase in prices, but also the medium term transformative reforms and the trends that are accelerating today because of COVID and because of the various shocks. And last but not the least, I think more you connect this region to the rest of the world, better is... And here comes the role of the private sector, the roles of investors, comes the importance of the enablers, education, healthcare. All these elements are fundamental in designing the future. Still, this year is going to be a challenging one for the world economy and for the region too. And it's very important for the countries to preserve their stability when the winds are changing and the tides are high.
0: Jihad Azur, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me.
1: Next up, John, Natasha, and I will focus on the trade-offs associated with IMF funding and the potential for Gulf funding to take over. John and Natasha, good to see you. Good to see you, Danny. Good
3: to see you, Danny.
1: Dr. Azor mentioned trade-offs regarding subsidy reform, the social contract. Certainly trade-offs will also become an issue when it comes to sources of funding for middle-income countries in the next several years. To start, Dr. Azor spoke to the importance of moving quickly, being transparent with people about trade-offs that come with reforms. What I never understood when I was living in Jordan is people felt that government interventions, call it subsidies, price controls, were an entitlement despite the fact that surely everyone understood they were not living in a country that could afford to do those kinds of interventions indefinitely. Where does that disconnect come from between the IMF, these governments, and the people?
0: First, people think that the reason the government can't afford things is not because it can't afford them, but because there's corruption, because there are other people stealing, and that a little more efficiency will mean that they can continue things as they go. But the other piece of it is I think a lot of people feel that their middle-class status is precarious, that they can only be middle-class because They have these things that take the edge off rising prices, take the edge off the cost of fuel. And I think there really is this sense that people have that were it not for that, they would in fact be really poor. And this is the only thing that allows them to be middle-class. The other piece of that, which I think is a very important piece is the poorest of the poor are generally not politically active. You need a certain amount of time and a certain amount of security to go out into the streets and really protest. And I think if we think back to the Arab Spring protests and everything else, they're really a protest of the middle classes, not the lowest classes. And I think as we look forward to economic precarity in the Middle East that Jihad Azor was talking about, we do have to wonder about where the middle class is going to be. I think actually... The largest number of people in the Middle East aren't really in the poorest of the poor. Their interest in people who feel poor, and an awful lot of people in the Middle East feel poor, partly because the cost of a phone and the cost of internet and the cost of a car and all those things, things that you wouldn't assume would be necessities in 1970, are certainly necessities in 2023. And they cost a lot of money.
3: Yeah, I've talked about this before, but that gap between realities and expectations. If you go to university for four years and you put in the hard work and there's no employment for you, then that's going to create some tensions, right, between the population and their government. And we're seeing rising unemployment rates. In some countries, it's like a fourth of the population that's unemployed.
0: And certainly even higher numbers of young people.
3: And underemployed, right? And so I think that, you know, how these countries absorb those people, those young people in the future is going to have a tremendous effect on the stability of the region and, and, you know, what we see moving forward. And then that also intersects with a lot of the other challenges that we're seeing. I mean, from covid but also with climate change. You know, there are parts of Jordan right now where ninety percent of the active male labor force is employed by the public sector because agriculture is just no longer a possibility in these places.
0: Well, and so the IMF's argument is you have to create private sector jobs, and you know, that's where they're trying to move toward. The challenge is that A lot of people say, well, I don't really see the jobs, and it's slow, and and I need a job now, not in six years. And not only in countries like Jordan, countries like Egypt, countries throughout the region, the expectation is that the governments have to absorb all this excess labor force. As you move more women into the workforce, you also have an even greater demand for how do you create enough high-quality jobs, to keep everybody employed. And it's one thing to say, in theory, this all works out. But as you have young people, maybe 20, 24, 25, thinking about what's my future, can I afford to get married, can I get an apartment, can I do all these sorts of things, that transition period of not having a government job to count on and maybe in the next five to ten years landing a job, that's a miserable transition period. And that's where I think a lot of tension could emerge, and this is certainly one of the things he said that they have to pay attention to where the politics are. I think that's one of the areas that the, the IMF and the governments consider a danger zone.
3: Yeah. I mean, there was one more point that he made, which I think is really important, which is capital in these countries. De Soto famously wrote The Mystery of Capital about 20 years ago, where he basically said that lack of access to credit is not because people lack assets in the Middle East or anywhere else in the developing world. But the issue is that the ownership of the assets aren't properly recorded, which prevents their use of them as collateral. And so he actually mentioned this, and it was 20 years ago. In Egypt, the wealth that the poor have accumulated is worth 55 times as much as the sum of all direct foreign investment ever recorded there. And so I think that this region also needs to find a way to properly record these assets so that people can actually take out loans. They can get married. They can get houses.
0: But it's not merely recording the assets. The challenge throughout the region is the banking system doesn't provide resources to people who need them. The banking system provides resources for people who don't really need them. And it's not so much an issue of microcredit. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to raise funds, it's extraordinarily hard. You've seen a lot of movement in Egypt to set up incubators. You've seen efforts in Jordan to set up incubators to have some degree. of. But for a lot of people, just the normal ability to access loans to create productive investments hard. That means that people put money into real estate and you have real estate speculation. You don't have people investing in the kinds of things that produce jobs, produce prosperity. And I think, frankly, a lot of people don't trust the economic system to reward them because there's a sense that you can have the world's best idea and the world's best employees, but unless you have a personal connection to the right regulator, you're not going to be able to make it. And that's where I think what he was talking about with good governance and getting rid of corruption That's where that becomes so important. People have to have faith that good ideas and good effort will produce good reward. And there are a lot of places in the Middle East where there's a lot of skepticism that even if you do all the things right, you can make it work.
3: And the World Bank has been working quite hard on sort of digitizing some of these records and assets so that corruption Is less of a possibility so that you can actually collect utilities payments and have a functioning government.
0: There are a lot of different pieces, and we're getting there bit by bit. But I think a lot of people still look and say, this is not a system that can work for me. This is a system that works for the people who already have power, but it's not a system that works for 90 or 95% of the population. And I think it's that group that drove a lot of the Arab Spring protests It's a group that now felt the Arab Spring didn't produce either better governance or more prosperity or more jobs, whether they turn to a broad protest again or become more alienated. I think to me, that's one of the challenges to understand. As he said, 2023 is going to be a difficult year. Are people going to come together? Are people going to check out? That's a, a difficult question, but I'm not sure that people feel that they have a really good answer for how to change the equation.
1: I'm glad we turned to the topic of funding, but if we can zoom out to sort of whole of country level funding, if we accept that wealthy Gulf governments are likely to step in and support middle-income neighbors with loans and other funding in lieu of the IMF, surely they will expect something in return. What do you think that will be?
3: Well, I think John would be better posed to answer that question. I would also like to ask him about China and what those trade-offs would be, because I see them being an actor in the present and the future even more so. Mm. But I would say you saw Gulf countries investing pretty heavily in places like Lebanon, and then they saw what was going on in Lebanon and they pulled back, and you know, and probably rightfully so, right? So I would be curious to know. I think from a political perspective, what you think the trade-offs might be.
0: I mean, for one thing, they're hostile to political Islam. They're hostile to systems that change the relationship between governments and the governed. So I think there'll be an effort to keep things tidy in the way they see it. They certainly are going to want their returns. And this has often been a problem that people who invested in some of these countries felt they couldn't get money out of these countries. And the Gulf governments are going to say, we want to make sure that we can cash in our investments. I think they are looking to get away from a lot of the corruption that they feel is present in the region. So there could be a real alignment between the interests of the IMF, the World Bank, and some of these foreign investors. And investors from other parts of the world could come in after the Gulf as well and and may find that these changes make it more attractive to invest. On the China side, China's not really invested a lot in the Middle East. They've done projects in the Middle East. But in terms of putting money into the region, they make contracts. They agree to build things with their people, and then they go home. So I don't think the Chinese are really looking for that. And I think, frankly, the Chinese are already imagining the horizon for their engagement with the Middle East. The energy transition will mean that after 30 years, they won't have to have much to do with the Middle East in their mind. So I think they're looking to make arrangements in the near term, partly to blunt U.S. hegemony in the Middle East and undermine that and distract the U.S. from the Western Pacific. But I don't think China is looking for a long-term investment. I don't think China has any view on what a lot of these governments should look like how they should operate or how their economics should work. Chinese talk quite explicitly. There's no China model per se. There's a Chinese experience. But ideologically, the Chinese are kind of done with the idea of, of trying to inspire people to follow a Chinese economic model.
3: Right. And what do you think about sort of back to the Gulf countries, the Iranian influence part of this? Because I know In Lebanon, especially USAID in particular, can't really work in a lot of southern Lebanon because of the Hezbollah presence. And obviously Gulf countries, many Gulf countries, have an issue with Iranian influence too. Has that impacted their desire whatsoever to sort of look at ties to Lebanon, Iraq, you know, other places where there's obvious Iranian influence?
0: It's been interesting in Iraq because initially the Gulf states came into Iraq Partly to bring Iraqis into greater alignment with the Gulf and draw Iraqis away from Iran. Whether they're going to sustain that, I think the Gulf countries are sort of interested in Iraq, but aren't ready to double down on Iraq. They want to leave themselves and out if things go in the wrong direction. But I think they also have become persuaded that if you leave Iraq to the Iranians, it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's no going back to Iraq as a Sunni bulwark against Iran. Iraq may become a more attractive focus for investment in the future. But I think at the current time, the Gulf states have been interested in coming in in the wake of the IMF, certainly in places like Egypt, where the IMF does the heavy arm twisting that the Gulf states weren't able to do after the Arab Spring. And they come in and they invest in formerly state-owned enterprises and other kinds of investments, I think they're interested, but they also want to preserve their ability to out if they can't get the kinds of returns that they should.
1: John, in the interview, you mentioned that the ultimate loan from the IMF to Egypt was much smaller than many people only expected. $3 billion,
0: which is not a lot of money for a country
1: of 100 only million people. Billion? Right. If you take that in concert with this sense that there's going to be greater Gulf funding for these countries... Is there a sense that the IMF and its role is shrinking in the region? And whether or not, what does the Middle East look like in the medium to long term if Gulf governments take on a bigger role in funding middle-income countries?
0: Yeah, I don't know about you, Natasha, but I certainly have been struck when I was living in Egypt in the 90s when people talked about Arabs, there are two ways people talked about Arabs, right? One was we are the heart and soul of the Arab nation, Arab was good. But the other is Arabs are the Gulfies who don't work very hard and have a sense of entitlement and don't have a sense of culture and all those other sort of things. I could imagine that we get to a point where there's a lot of resentment that Egyptians feel they are working and all the money is going overseas, right? Because Egyptians and Jordanians and Lebanese and others feel a sense of exploitation from the Gulf. But they're also... Is an important way. The Gulf is a source of huge amounts of capital, potentially, that would help transform the region. And as Jihad Azor said, in many ways, there have been these efforts at diversification in the Gulf that can be models for more robust, diversified economies in the Levant and North Africa as well. My guess is there's going to be a lot of both, that there is going to be complaints. That we've sold out the country to foreigners, and the sort of negative Arab mm. connotation will come up. But on the other hand, I also expect that some of it's going to be positive—a sense that that there's possibility because you have access to capital, access to capital which really has not been widespread, mm. and it could be transformational for tens of millions of Egyptians, if not 100, not a hundred million.
3: Yeah, I mean, I suspect that. I mean, the IMF and the World Bank. Also are set up in a sense to sort of provide their seal of approval, right? So even if it's a $3 billion loan, as John was saying, with that $3 billion loan and after those negotiations, then Gulf governments and I'm assuming other foreign investors feel maybe a little bit more comfortable entering the market and investing and things Mm -hmm. like that. The thing that I would find interesting more from sort of the geopolitical perspective is when you're taking money from such different pots, right? And so there are these trade-offs that we're talking about. When do those trade-offs start to contradict each other? Mm -hmm. And as these countries are pulled in multiple directions, because I know Jordan has felt that, and being pulled in the direction of the United States, which has its own strings attached to various funding bits... And others. And I think that that's going to be a tightrope, I think, for a lot of these middle income countries to walk for the next few years.
0: But I think one of the differences is the United States has had a democracy and governance aspect to its programs for decades. That This dates back to my dissertation on Egypt and American foreign assistance in the 50s. And part of the program was, how do you have good local governance in Egypt? The Gulf governments are not interested in democracy and governance issues. They're interested in making the economics work. Whether that creates a conflict with Western countries, whether it's complementary, partly depends on how things play out in some of these recipient countries. But I think that there's probably a larger discussion that's going to happen in the United States. How important should democracy and governance be to U.S. development programs as there's increasing financial pressure on U.S. foreign assistance. Our aid program to Egypt has gotten much smaller than it's been. And I wonder as more Americans question what our role in the world should be and how much we should be trying to remake the world in our image, whether there'll just be a sense that governance in the Middle East is not a principal concern of the United States, it's not a principal concern of the Gulf Arab states, that it may fall down on the priority list how that affects issues of democracy and governance in the Middle East, if the U.S. is less focused on it and other donors are less focused, I think is is an open question, but one also worth paying attention to.
1: Near Eastern studies nerd myself, I'm often more inclined to look at the political and social drivers of change. So it's been interesting to take a look at economic drivers instead. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank, thank you. So
0: Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSAS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSAS Mideast.